Father, I pray that these revealing words of your Son, our great Savior Jesus, do their saving work and their sanctifying work. May you cause hope to spring forth in each soul, the hope that is found in and only in Jesus Christ, our King with whom we have to do and who so mercifully saves sinners. So give us ears to hear and help me unfold the meaning of this text. And by your Spirit, cause us to see it and love it. To the glory of the name of Jesus. Amen. I think we all know what it's like to be very relieved to wake up from a dream. Right? That, that monster I've been running from is not real. Whew. Or, I didn't commit that horrible crime. I mean, I'm a law-abiding guy, but it seems so real. And I awake. Oh, it's not, it's not true. Thank goodness. Well, what a relief it is, isn't it, to awake and realize you did not show up to your seventh grade class in your underwear. Or, have you ever dreamt that you loafed through a high school or college course throughout the semester, playing, having fun, and never doing any work, and rarely showing up to class, only to realize it's the night before final exams, and a paralyzing fear hits you, and then you wake up. Ah, oh, it was just a dream. But what if this kind of dream is a metaphor? For an eternal reality. What if you realize too late that you have to give an account to him and you have not been doing what you ought to have been doing throughout the semester of your life? And the examiner is the Lord Jesus Christ. What if you realize that and that horrific nightmare is a reality from which you will never wake up. Jesus tells this parable to warn us of the coming final exam. Notice in your text there, verse 11, notice the particular context in which he tells this parable. It's crystal clear. As they heard these things, he proceeded to tell a parable because he was near Jerusalem and because they supposed that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. See, here's the thing. His disciples and the rest of the Jewish people of the first century, they did not understand that the Messiah, the son of David, the king, had to suffer and to die and to rise from the dead first. And then a period of time until he returns. A second time to usher in the fullness of the kingdom. See, they believed the kingdom of God would come in existence and in power in Jerusalem. That's why it says in verse 11, because he was near Jerusalem. They had high expectations from where? From Scripture. I mean, they were like YouTubes playing in their head. Like Zechariah chapter 14, which says, On that day his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives, and the Mount of Olives will be split in two from east to west. Then the Lord my God will come, and all the holy ones with him. On that day there will be no light, no cold or frost. The Lord will be king over the whole earth. On that day there will be one Lord, 
in his name, the only name. See, they had these truths in their head. They were excited. They were in Jericho. Jerusalem was only 18 miles away, and that's where they're headed. And they're thinking, Jesus is the one. Our master's the one. His preaching, his miracles, his healings have been causing expectations in his disciples and in the Jewish community of Palestine to skyrocket. They're thinking he's going to immediately destroy all of our enemies when we get to Jerusalem. He's going to usher in the realm from above and bring God's eternal rule to earth. Okay, that's the context. And therefore, Jesus told this parable. He told it to be clear that there is an interim between his two comings. See, the idea of him coming, and then there's this long delay before he comes back. This was hard for his disciples to understand, even after Jesus' resurrection, after he taught his disciples for five weeks in his resurrected body. We read in Acts 1-6, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? They still didn't get it. But by chapter 3 of Acts, they got it. Peter in his sermon says concerning Jesus, whom heaven must receive. He ascended to the Father. Heaven must receive until the time for restoring of all things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets long ago. This parable that Jesus tells is a story in order to illustrate his two comings with a long period in between. And in that period, he shows us in this parable that there are those who are good stewards of the gospel with their lives, and they shall receive rewards. Then there are also those who have the outward appearance of being a Christian, but will prove to be false, wicked, slaves. And finally, there are those who outright reject Jesus as sovereign king over their lives. They don't want any of his rule. And at his second coming, they will be cast into hell. So, the parable, verse 12, Jesus said, therefore, a nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and then return. This is Jesus' picture of himself. He's the nobleman who comes to a distant country through the womb of Mary. God himself, the second person, becoming a human being in order to receive a kingdom. And then he's killed. And then he rises from the dead. And he ascends to heaven. He went back. But before the nobleman departed, he did something. He gave to those who were his servants something to invest while he's gone. Verse 13. Calling ten of his servants, he gave them ten minas and said to them, Engage in business until I come. Each one of the ten was given one mina, which was about four months' wages, about, in our terms, seven to $8,000 apiece, in order that they would invest that money, make that money grow. Everybody who is associated with Jesus is to invest the currency of the gospel and to multiply it. Jesus says to his servants, receive the treasure of my glory and invest it down here in order that it grows. Bear the fruit of your trust in the gospel by your living, by your love and service to others. Use your money and your time and your talents 
and let the treasury of heaven grow. Go to work. These servants represent everybody who has been brought into the king's community by the preaching of the gospel. The miners represent responsibilities of all professing Christians. Do business with the currency of heaven. He will come back one day. And then he will call each servant to account for faithfulness. But before Jesus gets to that part of his parable, when he returns, he mentions another group in verse 14. But his citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him saying, we do not want this man to reign over us. See, Jesus knew exactly how everything was to unfold, unfold about his life, his ministry, the gospel throughout the centuries before his second coming. He knew everything that was going to be happening in this interim period. He knew the response of the Jewish nation to whom he came and the citizens of the whole world. See, it's a parable. It's a story. It's a picture of the historical reality that's just weeks away. As we read in John 19, Pilate said to the Jews, Behold your king. They cried out, Away with him! Away with him! Crucify him! Pilate said to them, Shall I crucify your king? The chief priest answered, We have no king but Caesar. So he delivered him over to them to be crucified. The parable is a picture that this crucified man was made king by his resurrection and he returned home and was received as king in heaven by his ascension. And he will one day return and settle accounts first with his servants on the basis of their doing business with what he invested in them. Secondly, with his enemies who outright rejected his kingship. So, look at verse 15. When he returned, this is Jesus' second coming, having received the kingdom, he ordered these servants to whom he had given the money to be called to him so that he might know what they had gained by doing business. The first came before him saying, Lord, your mina has made ten minas more. And he said to him, Well done, good servant. Because you have been faithful in a very little, you shall have authority over ten cities. And the second came, saying, Lord, your mina has made five minas. And he said to him, And you are to be over five cities. It's examination day. And their prophet tenfold, fivefold. Not only you passed, but with rewards on top of it. Why? Because what they did with the mina was proof of their faithfulness to him. Proof that they were genuine. They had faith in Christ, their king. Those who love the absent king trust his mercy. They delight in the anticipation of his return. They obey joyfully in investing the good news of a merciful king. The money, the mina, the gospel. These two servants, they're a picture of what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5.10. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done 
in the body, whether good or bad. See, these two servants, they're rewarded. Not paid. It's all mercy. They're rewarded for degrees of investment, for faithfulness in walking with Christ as genuine believers. Ten cities for you. Five cities for you. The mina. Invest it. What does he mean? He means faithful living. Living to Christ. In front of your families. In your culture. Always being ready as you go about life to give a reason for the hope that is within you. Hope is seen. People say, what is it about you? Because you've been changed if you're a Christian. Christ and the gospel is your hope. It overflows in visiting the sick and the imprisoned and the lowly, the downtrodden, doing obscure duties in your local church. No one knows. God knows. Being a steward over your giftings, over your time, and over your money for Christ. Not the same jobs. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 12, there's only one body, but many different kinds of members. There's toes and fingers and kidneys and elbows and tongues and ears and hair. And they have differing talents, gifts, callings, minas, from the smallest to the largest. Faithfulness living by faith in Christ, which bears the fruit of loving actions through our giftings and time and money and all that, is the issue. It means, as you invest the money, is going about the work of the kingdom according to the stewardships that the Lord gives. Why well, do you think Jesus was just so stunned and made a point to mention it and make sure it's in the Bible when he's in the temple, and there was a poor widow giving her last couple pennies. Why? Because she gave more than all these rich guys who didn't love the king. It's because her giving, her act, and acts throughout her life were springing from a heart of delight and joy and hope and love for the absent king. It sprang from a heart of faith. That was the key. It's coming up out of worship. So, so she can worship the king with what she's got. What did you give me? I got a couple pennies. She worshiped. What do I got? I got 20 minutes to give to that person. I got a day to care for that sick person. I got time to tell those people how to be saved from their sin. Whether it's pennies or $100 bills or speech or hospitality or evangelism, or denying oneself living in sexual sin, or thousands of unseen services, often that which is done in secret will be rewarded. Not now, but when he returns openly. In the text, these servants, they're rewarded in some kind of a proportion to their investments. But don't miss this. There's another sense of this text. When you look at it closely, these rewards far exceed the service we do. One minor, it's made ten minus. Well done. In that little you did. 
Here's your reward. You're over ten cities. Five minus over five cities. That's a whole lot more than that investment. I, I think C.H. Spurgeon, Charles Spurgeon is on to something, Baptist preacher in the 1800s, when he comments about this, saying, the rewards will evidently be all of grace because they are so incomparably beyond anything which the servants' earnings could have deserved. Their Lord was not bound to pay them anything. They were his bond servants. But what he gave them was of his overflowing grace. Ten cities. Five cities. Okay, stop for a minute. Is Jesus' point to say, all you power-hungry type A personalities, I'm appealing to you. What you really want is to, to rule over cities. That's your goal? So therefore, come to me and serve me, and I'll give you the God you really want. Power over cities. Or big mansions and houses, or more toys in heaven. Is he really saying, you really worship toys and houses or being a ruler over people? Most of us really don't want to actually be rulers over cities. I don't really have a real desire. for that. So is that his point? No, it's a parable. Okay, see, it's not that everyone's going to be ruling over a certain amount of cities. It's not what he's teaching here. Anyone he's teaching that I'm going to have four legs in heaven or in the resurrection because I'm called a sheep. It's a parable. So this is a parable of a ruler, a nobleman. He's going to receive a kingdom. And in kingdoms, they have to rule over people, have structure. That's why he uses this language. The point, though, of the parable is that Christ-centeredness in this life and faithfulness as servants will be rewarded in the eternal state. There are rewards. And you can lose rewards, and you can gain rewards. But what in the heck are rewards? What are you talking about? Our houses? What? I think Matthew Henry, back in the late 1600s and early 1700s, I think he nails it when he says it this way. Listen carefully. I think I might, I might read it twice. I want you to get it. Because I think this is the only way I know how to explain rewards as I look at the Bible through 33 years as a Christian. Quote, This intimates that there are degrees of glory in heaven. Every vessel will be alike, full, but not alike, large. And the degrees of glory there will be according to the degrees of usefulness here. Okay, what? Down here, our walk with Christ, worship and love for him, overflowing to others with a currency of God's glory in the gospel of Christ is accumulating degrees a reward or glory is accumulating capacity. Everyone there will be full. There'll be no disappointed believers. Period. End of issue. Every tear will be wiped away. Everyone will be fully worshiping to their capacity with no lack. But think about how Matthew Henry says it. There are degrees of glory in heaven. Every vessel will be alike. Totally full, but not alike. Large. Now, some of you know over the years the illustration I use to try to get at this. I'm going to take the illustration I normally use and mix it with this parable and see if this helps you. The nobleman gave to each servant a non-inflated balloon of the gospel of God's glory. 
and said to each of them, blow it up as large as you can while I'm gone. Blow it up with a heart of faith and worship and overflowing deeds for others. Blow and blow until I return. At his return, the first man said, Look, your balloon of the enjoyment of your glory is ten times bigger. Well done. Your reward is the capacity for my glory tenfold. And another, look, your reward for enjoying your glory and spilling it out and loving others is five times bigger than what you gave me. Well done. Your capacity for all eternity in enjoying me is fivefold. Mm. I hope that helps you. I, I, I don't know how else to say it, and I love to talk about the future and what we don't know and what we do know, but that's what makes the most sense to me. And so if you ask me about rewards again, I'm going to say the same thing. I'll, I'll keep doing it. I'd be love to do it in different ways, but try to grasp that. Yeah. The story goes on, and Jesus unfolds a tragedy, starting with verse 20. Then another came, saying, Lord, here is your mina, which I kept laid away in a handkerchief, for I was afraid of you. Because you're a severe man, you take what you did not deposit, and you reap what you did not sow. He said to him, I will condemn you with your own words, you wicked servant. You knew that I, I was a severe man, taking what I did not deposit and reaping what I did not sow? Why then did you not put my money in a bank? And at my coming, I might have collected it with interest. Okay, follow the logic of this guy. He says, I had good reason to disobey you because, by not investing your currency of heaven. Here's my reason, Lord, because I was afraid of you. The reason I was afraid of you is because I viewed you as a severe king, a, a strict and exacting man. And my reason for the, that viewpoint is because you take what you did not deposit. And you, you reap what you did not sow. That's the logic of the text. That's his argument. Let's hear Jesus' word picture of business transactions here applied to his second coming. Jesus, as a man, as a woman who has been connected to your community on earth, as a professing believer, I, I, I refused to live in obedience to you because I viewed you as an unloving cutthroat exploiter who was only out for his own selfish desires, your own glory. And you wanted to use me to plant and to invest so you can reap. I'm just a means to your end to bettering you. You had no regard for me. That's what he's saying. And his view of God caused an unbiblical and an unwarranted and a distorted fear that paralyzed him from acting and moving and investing. The king's response to the first two servants proves that this guy's fear was unwarranted. This guy does not know the king, and he demonstrated it by his view of God and his subsequent disobedience. In short, his view was, God, you're all out for your glory. 
You, you, you want me to multiply it in my life and in the world for you. So you don't care about me. But the other two servants, they experienced the truth. The truth that the spread of God's mina, the growth of God's glory extended, was to their eternal happiness. They got it. And this third guy's words on that day that he spoke, they're a testimony against him. Look at verse 22. And he, the king, said to him, I will condemn you with your own words, you wicked servant. He hung himself. You knew that I was a severe man, taking what I did not deposit and reaping what I did not sow. Okay, okay, okay. If, if you knew that, that's where you're coming from. Why then did you not put my money in the bank? And have my coming, I might have collected it with interest. You make no sense, sir. See, the master repeats the servant's words in order to make the case that this servant's words convicted him of his wickedness. The guy put himself in a no-win situation. What do I mean? See, if he was correct about the king, that's the way he really is, then he should have done something to multiply the king's money. But if his assessment about the king was wrong, then he insulted his master. He slandered the king. Either way, he loses. His words are a testimony in the dock against him. But again, the mercy that this master shows towards these other two faithful servants shows that this third guy was so messed up in his thinking about this master and this king. And it was really just a cover-up, just an excuse for his disobedience. You know, this parable points to a reality that's been going on for 2,000 years since the king came and then returned. And that is this. Some people reject God, the gospel of Jesus, on a distorted excuse. If God is so harsh, or you believe, you believe in hell, eternal punishment, well, then I don't want to know that kind of God. If that's true, forget it. Huh. But if God is sovereign, and he is, in fact, severe with a just, eternal hell, then that is even more reason that this guy ought to respond, therefore, to his mercy. And so Jesus continues and says, here's the judgment on the third guy. Verse 24. And he said... To those who stood by, probably the other servants around here in the parable. Take the mina from him and give it to the one who has the ten minas. And they said to him, Lord, he has ten minas. I tell you that everyone who has, more will be given. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. Oh, the gospel is so good. His mercy is so deep. Not only does he remove what we deserved. Verse 27 is what we deserve. To be slaughtered. Oh, but his mercy has pulled us out of such a fate. And everyone who trusts the master and is faithful will have rewards. And more rewards than they could possibly imagine for any faithfulness that was worked through them. But on the other hand, the one who doesn't respond in trusting obedience 
will be stripped, even of what he thinks he has. Now, let me do a big parenthesis, because here's a question. If, if, you're, if you're looking at this parable, it should be one of the main questions that arises with us Christians as good Bible readers, and that's this. Who does this third servant represent, you know, in real life? In other words, does he represent a true believer who loses out on rewards, like 1 Corinthians 3.15? If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. So, does it refer to a true believer? who loses out on rewards, or to a churched person who professes to know Christ, but by his deeds denies him. Like Titus 1.16. They profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. So, what exactly is Jesus communicating by this third servant? Some fellow believers take this to mean a judgment of rewards for the saved people only. Yes, there is a suffering of loss of rewards, though the saved person, this servant, he himself, will be saved, but only as through fire. The argument, or two arguments for this, the strongest ones are this. In the text, Jesus makes no reference to eternal punishment of this third servant. You know, like outer darkness or gnashing of teeth. So he's not explicit there about that kind of stuff. And secondly, the delegation, you know, that went after the king and outright rejected him, clearly that's a group of unbelievers who will not be saved, and they're slaughtered in the end. But the third servant, he, he doesn't fit that group. That's the argument. But I think the text more clearly points to this guy being a false Christian. First reason is this. In a very similar parable in the Gospel of Matthew that Jesus told about taking the money and investing it the slave who refused to invest the money in Matthew, the master of that parable, says about him, cast the worthless servant into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. The second reason, I think it refers to a false Christian, is that the master's statement, quote, even what he has will be taken away, in verse 26 there, the guy ends up with nothing. And the third reason is that Jesus addresses this servant as evil. You wicked servant. In verse 22, that's end time, judgment day, eschatological talk. And so, I think Daryl Bach, one of the major commentators on Luke, I think Daryl Bach is correct when he concludes, quote, The third servant represents people who are related to the king in that they are associated with the community and have responsibility in it. Nevertheless, their attitude shows that they do not see God as gracious and that they have not really trusted him. The third slave's attitude toward the master is important. He does not see his master as gracious, but is hard and unjust. And so he does not respond to the king. Such people are left with nothing at the judgment. They are sent to outer darkness because they never really trusted or knew God. This slave may have been 
one of those who has a false assurance that they're safe. I have a fire insurance policy. Hell, I want to go there. What do I do? Well, get baptized. Okay, I did that. Come to church, come to I did that. Read your Bible. I did that. Say a prayer. I did that. I'm related to the church, right? I'm safe. They told me I'm saved. I'm good to go. I'm safe. Judas was one of those. He was right there this day when Jesus told the parables. See, these kinds of people that this third servant represents, they see themselves as related to Jesus, and they may even carry out responsibilities in his name. Church history is filled with it. Many popes, bishops, pastors, whether Roman Catholic, Evangelical, Protestant, or whatever, or other people you've never heard of. Yeah, I'm a Christian. But they don't know him. Really, they don't know him really. They don't know him savingly, his loving Abba, Father. And so he's called in this text, wicked servant, condemned. Much like what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 7. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Jesus, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, when he returns, many will say to me, Lord Jesus, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do mighty works in your name with churched people? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. A third servant represents a second group. The first group are faithful, genuine, true believers, and they will enter in, and they will receive varying degrees of reward. The second group are those who are professing Christians, but they're not really genuine, and it will be shown on the latter day by the fruit, because real faith bears fruit. And then, in the parable, the king closes with the judgment on those that he brought up in verse 14. Remember verse 14? His citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him saying, we do not want this man to reign over us. And now he says in verse 27, but as for those enemies of mine who did not want me to reign over them, bring them here and slaughter them before me. This is the future for all reject Christ. Jesus will return as the Lamb and the Lion. And He will return not only to bring salvation to all who are His and have believed, but He will return in wrath. Eternal judgment. Just listen to the picture that Jesus gives in the Revelation. Revelation 19, verses 11 and 16. I saw heaven standing open, and there before me was a white horse whose rider is called Faithful and True. With justice he judges and makes war. His eyes are like blazing fire, and on his head are many crowns. He has a name written on him that no one knows but he himself. He is dressed in a robe dipped in blood, and his name is the Word of God. The armies of heaven were following him, riding on white horses and dressed in fine linen, white and clean. Out of his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. He will rule them with an iron scepter. 
he treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has this name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Jesus is coming into this world, forces every person to decide. A few decades later, the Apostle Paul, churches are being planted, so it's very much just written to us. We're church here. We're church-going people. Paul writes in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us. Listen, listen. When is he going to do that? When the Lord Jesus is revealed. When he returns, his second coming. When he is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus, they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might when he, Christ, comes on that day in order to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed. But as for those enemies of mine who did not want me to reign over them, bring them here and slaughter them before me. This is the wrath, the just the holy, the perfect judgment of God. This wrath, hell, torment, outer darkness, weeping, gnashing, and teeth is not an impersonal consequence of sin. Well, God has nothing to do with it. People just send themselves there. Read the Bible. It is God's holy activity against sinners who hate his son from ruling and reigning over them. This is why Jesus said in Matthew 10, verse 28, Do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him that's God, who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Now, so I want to pause. If, if you are in Matthew 10, I want you to look at it. If not, just listen. Because what is so amazing about what Jesus just said there is that he didn't stop there. His very next words to his disciples here in the context are designed to give us deep peace and rest in God's fatherly care. I'll tell you who to fear. Fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. And he goes on. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. But even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, therefore, you are of more value than many sparrows. He says, believer whom I've saved, rest in the salvation. The Father's care for you is mind-boggling beyond anything you can possibly imagine. Fear not. Right after he said, rather fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. So here's the question that I want to close with. 
How are we who love the king, how are we to experience these two truths about God? He is to be feared. There is a holy fear of God. And he is to be trusted. Thus he's to be experienced as our joy and our security and our rest as a, as a child in daddy's lap. How do we experience these two seemingly polar ideas? The answer is in the context of this parable. Go back to the beginning again. Verse 11. Jesus proceeded to tell a parable because he was near Jerusalem. Okay. Guys, it's not happening immediately. We're going to Jerusalem. He's already been telling them throughout this gospel. We're going to Jerusalem to be killed. That's the answer. Jerusalem. The cross. In other words, the key to these two things, fear of a fearful God and trust and rest in Him, the key is that God Himself is the one who removes His wrath from us. Our peace and our rest in God does not come from Horrific theology. It doesn't come from hiding the truth of the Bible. Our peace and rest in God does not come from removing the truth of God's holy wrath. Hell. But our peace, it comes from God's removing His wrath. From us. He's done that by sending his son to die in our place so that for everyone who believes and clings and loves the absent king, God's wrath is removed. That's how Jesus said it in John 3. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness. Do you remember the story in the wilderness? The serpent on, on the stick. People are dying. How do, how do I get saved from this? From this punishment of God? Look on the serpent and they'd be saved. So as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, Jesus said, So must the Son of Man be lifted up on the cross to die. So that whoever believes in him may have eternal life, not wrath. As he goes on in chapter 3, whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. So when Jesus cried out on the cross, My God! My God, why have you forsaken me? He was experiencing the wrath of God's abandonment in our place. Before he breathed his last, he said, It is finished. Salvation accomplished. Okay. So then, this is a great gospel. Unbelievably good news. So, what is left to fear? Think about it. What? The answer is unbelief. Fear, unbelief. Fear, meaning don't want to be that. Fear being that wicked servant who doesn't trust and cling to such a merciful master while he's gone. Fear that. Let me just take a portion of Hebrews 4 
Because again, by the Holy Spirit, the writer's writing to Christians. He's writing to us professing believers, to us church-going people. Okay? He's writing to us who have come to Christ, heard the gospel, loved the gospel. And he says this in chapter 4, start with verse 1. Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, here's the command to your life. Let us fear, lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. Because good news, that's the gospel, came to us, just as to them in the wilderness. But the message they heard did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listened. For we who have believed enter that rest. Okay. The first two servants in our parable... They lived, Hebrews 4, 1 to 3. While he's gone. Oh, life has problems. Investments have problems. Oh, yeah. They lived it. My king is coming back. And I'm going to be held accountable. My king is merciful. Oh, I can't wait for his return. No. Disobey the king. He's not around. Fear rises. Uh-uh. That's the first two servants. The third servant. He's like one of those Christians who say, Oh no, I said a prayer. I go to church when I want to. You know, I give three dollars a month. I, uh, eh, well, you know, we all have sexual drive, so God understands if I, you know, don't actually pay attention to what he says on how to do or don't do sex. Ah! And you can go on and on and on. These people say, no, 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 no. The text like Hebrews, all the book of Hebrews, pretty much all the New Testament, all of Jesus, all of Paul's epistles, all through these warnings to church people about persevering in faith. Nah, they don't apply to me because I was told once saved, always saved. I said a prayer, I was saved, I'm in, doesn't matter what I do. You may be the third servant. Okay, do, do, okay. Here, 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 back to the question. What do we fear? How do we put these two together? Say it this way. For believers, fearing God means fearing the terrible thought of not trusting the one who paid the price for my deliverance from his just wrath, from eternal condemnation. And he paid the price to bring me unto joy and peace with God. The idea of moving away and living in such a way that shows I don't really trust him, that ought to be fearful. So as we daily walk by faith, that is walk by trust in Jesus, the reason believers don't live in debilitating fear, because that's not the fear of God there for a believer, they don't live in debilitating fear. The reason we don't is why? Because we believe in the gospel, the good news of Jesus. Justification by faith alone, through Christ alone. There can't be any better news. And that genuine faith evidences itself by how we do business. It evidences itself by our investing the mina of the gospel, which bears the interest of fruit. As Jesus said, you know them by their fruit. For the fruit of the Holy Spirit is love and joy and peace and patience. There's a pathway. There's a direction that genuine believers are going in doing business and bearing the fruit, collecting the interest of the gospel mina deposit. We are daily active as believers, in resting in the all-sufficient work of Jesus, listening to and clinging to his word. And at moments when unbelief tempts us, a holy fear rises and warns us what a foolish thing it would be to distrust the one who loved me and gave his son to die for 
our righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. And appropriate fear rises. We confess our sin. We turn. We feed upon the Word. And we rejoice again in such a glorious salvation. So let me just close and just say, Dear sinner who has fled to Christ, go on doing business. Go on investing your life, your soul, your works, time, treasure, talent. Go on investing it. Do business. Because I promise you, because Jesus promises you, your rewards will be great when he returns. Father, beg of you for weary souls like some of us at this moment cause such Holy Spirit driven refreshing water life to come forth oh take us your people and draw us close to you oh may we treasure your son more than ever May we treasure this salvation. May we be itching to repent and to overflow in the fruit of the Spirit in our lives and our families and our businesses and our workplaces. And may we overflow with the truth of the gospel and see the fruit of that interest growing in the world, in our lives and in this local church. Oh, Father, do this. To the glory of your eternal Son, to the joy of us, your people.